So the more you start to hear a story, the more you pay attention to it. So storytelling is one of the most powerful ways to shape culture and develop leaders. There's been research on it through Stanford and it's been replicated because a story is telling you what is encouraged or discouraged. Greetings everyone and welcome to Unleashed, the fastest hour on the internet, where every episode we're joined by an interesting thought leader, all in the name of helping you unleash your leadership potential with their insights, tools, and habits. I'm your host, Jeff Tetz, CEO of Results, where we believe there's a hard path and an easier path to building your business. We partner with your leadership team to show you how to dramatically improve your results by perfecting the art of execution to get more of what you want from your business. Have you ever wanted to tell stories where people were hanging on every word, sitting on the edge of their seat? Well, you're gonna love today's conversation. We're joined by storytelling expert, Karen Eber, where she's going to share the science of telling great stories, the structure of how to build your own compelling stories, and why storytelling is such an important leadership tool for increasing your own credibility and influence with the people that matter most to you. I want to thank our season sponsor, PowerEd. PowerEd is an award-winning division of Athabasca University, and they partner with organizations looking for impactful online learning solutions. Their online offerings include leadership, digital transformation, project management, artificial intelligence and ethics, digital wellness, and embracing allyship and inclusion. Their core belief is that learning should be fun, engaging, and easily accessible. Their online platform means your employees can literally learn from wherever they are located. PowerEd meets them in their space and at a time that works best for them. Check out PowerEd at powered.ca. And don't forget to help us grow the community by sharing the episode links with people in your network that love learning as much as you do. Check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to our podcast wherever podcasts are found. Now on with the episode. Now, my guest today is Karen Eber. Now, Karen is an international consultant and keynote speaker. Her talk on TED.com, how your brain responds to stories and why they're crucial for leaders, has over 1.7 million views. And it probably has over 1.8 million views by the time you're listening to this. As the CEO and chief storyteller of Eber Leadership Group, Karen helps companies reimagine and evolve how they transform culture. This includes building empathic and curious leadership and teams and helping leaders influence and inspire with storytelling. Karen works with Fortune 500 companies such as General Electric, ADP, Heinz Craft, Kate Spade, Facebook, and guest lectures at universities like Emory and Purdue. Karen has over 20 years of experience and, and has been the head of culture Chief Learning Officer and Head of Leadership Development at General Electric in Deloitte. That's some impressive experience. And she's a four-time American Training and Development winner, and she lives in Atlanta, Georgia with her family. Karen is also writing a book right now on storytelling, expected out in early 2023. We can't wait for that. Karen, welcome to Unleashed. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. Well, Karen, you have been one of the many silver linings, I think, of uh, online connections and unlikely collaborations during this whole COVID uh, play, uh, period of time. And while it's been harder to see people in person, I think one of the, one of the silver linings is that uh, the world, I think, in, for a lot of people has become a bit smaller. 
as we've gravitated to online platforms and met wonderful people like you. So you've been a part of our community now for about a year and a half. I've personally really enjoyed getting to know you and learning a, a little bit about your background and, and, and what you do and what you stand for. And this is a, a real pleasure to have a chance to spend some time formally with you on Unleashed today. The feeling is mutual. I've been looking forward to this. So Karen, I, I couldn't help but think about this topic of storytelling. And I think most of us, well, at least I do, and I hope I speak for others, we imagine being able to stand in front of a group of people, whether it's a large crowd or a small crowd, even just friends and family at a cocktail party or a birthday party, and be able to tell stories like William Wallace and Braveheart or maybe Al Pacino on any given Sunday, but the kinds of stories that make the hairs in the back of people's necks stand up. But I know for me, most of the time, my stories just kind of fall flat. So I am, uh, I am really looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say today. And hopefully you can help me become a little bit more like those folks a little bit less like the long-winded version of myself that seems to show up most of the time. So I thought we would start off by just talking a little bit about how did you become so curious and well-versed in storytelling in the first place? I told my first story when I was five. So you might not be able to see through the camera, but I have a brown eye and a green eye. So I was born with blue eyes and they turned to different colors when I was about six months old. And it was always the thing that I started to get noticed for as I was growing up. And by the time I got to school, that stands out. And I love this. Like, this is something that is, has always felt special to me. It's one of my favorite things. And when I went to school, all of a sudden people were like, what's that? How did that happen? What's going on? And I started to feel different and I started to feel weird. And this thing that was so special to me became this awkward thing. I became this like circus act where everyone was looking and pointing and the energy just wasn't good. So I started to tell this story about how when I was four years old, I had been born with brown eyes and I was in my room coloring one night and I saw a green crayon and I ate it and it tasted pretty good. And so I went through the whole box of crayons and I just ate all the green crayons. And the next day I woke up and my eye was green. And so I would tell that story and then I would stop. And every time I could see the person, like whether they were five like me or whether they were an adult, they'd be like, is she serious? And it would always throw them, but it would completely change the interaction because then we would get into a different dialogue and it stopped being, why are you so weird for this? And more like, wait, that's kind of cool. So I started to notice when I told this story and not only changed everything, but then people would come back to me and say, the crayons, you're the crayons. Like to this day, I still have people that come back to me and talk about crayons. So I noticed right away when you are telling stories at Shifts Energy, and it's something I started to play with as I moved through school and definitely in roles where I was leading leadership and culture, the greatest way to, to make movement is to connect people through story. I can you tell you're just, trying to look at my eyes now, aren't you? You've just, ruined, uh, you've just ruined the science of eating crayons for about 35 classmates that you had uh, back, back then if they, uh, if they get a chance to watch and listen to I this. I know, so. but Crayola is thankful that I just did. <laughs> uh, we'll have to hit them up for some sponsorship. I, I love how you used that for you and how that sort of led you, uh, you know, on, this, on this career journey that, that, that you're on as a kid. I think that happens quite often. So I, we all know that stories are important for entertaining people and making us laugh and making us feel a myriad of emotions. But there's other reasons that storytelling is so important. What are some of those reasons? 
if we could start with some of the science, there's, there's what I love to call the five factory settings of the brain. Like once you understand how your brain works, you can use stories as a hack to them. So the first is that our brains are lazy. The number one goal our brain has is get through the day without anything different from yesterday. Let's conserve as many calories as possible because if it conserves calories, then that saves it in case there's an emergency or some other part of the body wants it. So your brain wants you to do the same thing the same way every day because that's the easiest for survival. So one of the first things you have to do in storytelling is how do you make the brain spend some calories and think about things that are unexpected or different than you thought. A second is that we're processing 32 gigabytes of information every day. And that comes in so quick. So of course, we're going to stick it in our file system in our brain of, do I know what this is? Is this new? Does this need a new folder? And with that comes a whole bunch of assumptions. And when you tell a story, you're connecting to what people know and you're helping that connection, understanding and filing go faster. Um, we, we make assumptions. Part of that survival is that we are filling in gaps quickly as we're processing that 32 gigabytes of information. So as we're listening to something, our brain is always jumping ahead. This is why you're watching the movie and you're trying to figure out who did it when you're in the first five minutes of the movie. And part of a good story is you've got to slow down that assumption making. So not only are you having to make the brain spend calories, file the information right, but you have to slow down the assumptions, which means you have to have some details in there that engage the senses and, and are unexpected to people. Um, and stories are, are such a great way to create that idea of in and out groups. Our survival is dependent on being in in groups where we are with people that can help us in, in the early days, you know, hunt for food and survive and get shelter, but in days like today, just be able to live. And so we're always looking for groups that we are similar to or where we're different from. And stories give you that connection of, oh, yes, this is me or nope. And stories are helping with that. And the last is that we have all these hormones that in the simplest terms are causing us to either seek pleasure or abundance of something or avoid pain and try to avoid something. And so once you start to understand that the brain is gonna be trying to conserve calories and seek pleasure and avoid pain and look for belonging and, and make assumptions and find ways to file information, like then you start to realize, oh, there's like neurologically, there's ways to go about this to create more understanding. I wanna get into a little bit of the, <clears throat> the where and the how. So where do you find good stories? I'm some of us, I think, probably think that we have no good stories to tell. <clears throat> and then we probably have a relative who has too many stories that they think are good to tell and they're not. So how do we find good stories? And then how do we sort of evaluate the ones that are worth telling and the ones that aren't? Yeah. So the where is all around you. And what I find when I work with people is at first you have the reaction, like you said, of there's no stories around me. And then once you start to, to mine the different ideas, you realize there are several. So I have people think about what are your professional experiences? What was your first job, first project, best leader? You go through events from your professional life that are just notes and make a list of it. I'll encourage them to think about their personal life. What were those moments that stood out? What was your first concert? What were some of those different things? What was your best vacation, um, an obstacle you encountered? 
But the piece that I think people also don't pay attention to is as you move through the world, what are those things that excite you? What's the article that you read that you keep coming back to because it's interesting or the podcast you listen to? And so once you start to create an inventory of ideas, you realize, well, there's endless ideas. You might not know what the story is or the idea it's going to build, but what you want to do is actually create this toolbox because then when it's time to tell a story, you're going to look at your audience and think like, who is my audience and what do I want them to know, think, or do? after this story. So when you do that, you can come and look at all these different ideas and find one that stands out to you. Karen, that's helpful. Can we break down a little bit now, maybe the, uh, the elements of a good story. And, and I'd like to actually go a little bit beyond that as well. I mean, if, if, if there's a few key things that a story has to contain, but then I'd actually like to talk about the process because it doesn't sound like it's like it's a, going to be a, an easy thing to do to construct a good story that's going to be compelling. It's going to take some time. And I'd like to actually talk about <clears throat> some of the processes and some of the tools to actually build stories. But let's let's break down the sort of the science and the structure, I guess, of a good uh, of a good story first. Yeah. So the first is one, start with your audience. You mentioned that sometimes people have a lot of good stories, but they're not relevant. And that's usually because People are telling the story that they want to tell, but not the story that they want their audience to hear or that the audience needs to hear. So a good story actually doesn't start with the story or the idea. It always starts with who am I talking to and what exactly is it am I trying to do? What am I helping them think, do, know differently? Because that impacts how you tell the story and what the outcome is. So once you have that, you can then take your idea and start to map out really simple model. You want to start with a skeleton of a story. And I love the one that is memorable. That is a story has a beginning, a middle, and an end. Said differently, what is the context? The beginning is what is the context? What's happening? Why should I care is the listener. The second is what is the conflict? So this is the middle. What is the conflict where something happens and everything changes? Where is that point of tension. The third is what is the outcome? So what happens as a result of the conflict? And then I encourage people to write a takeaway sentence because that is the, how do we sum all of that up? What is the takeaway or idea from this story? So if you were getting ready for a meeting, you could run this model in 20 minutes. The more time you have, the better, but it would help you organize and tighten your story and what you're trying to do. What happens often in storytelling is people don't leave themselves enough time. They start rambling. They will start with, uh, it's Tuesday. And actually, no, I think it was Wednesday because I was going to meet my friend and it was raining. And no, actually it was Tuesday and the listener's getting so frustrated. But when you can start with the framework, you can then add to it. And it just gives structure for the brain to listen to. It helps that 32 gigabytes of information process easier. How do you prepare to tell a story then? Like, walk us through maybe just a little bit of, of some of the tools you use. I mean, do you, do you spend hours writing down a whole bunch of notes? Do you use mind maps? Like what kind of tools and what kind of process do you take yourself through? It varies depending on the story I'm going to tell. So if I'm writing the story, then I obviously have to write it out. I get the idea. I figure out the context, the conflict, the outcome. And then I usually go for a walk. 
and on the walk, it kind of writes itself. And then I go put pen to paper and then I leave it for at least a day, if not more. And I come back to it and I can make sure I go back to those five factory settings. And I think like, am I helping put unexpected things in here? Am I helping people feel like they belong to something or not belong? Am I intentionally telling a story that makes them uncomfortable or a story that creates this, this pleasure feeling? And I can go back with some perspective and see if I'm telling the story verbally, um, it's a little different because I often will start with my stories in writing. I tend to think through that. I'm an introvert and writing it out helps me really process. But then I've got to take this written story and think like, how do I take it to the stage? Um, the opening story in my TED talk is about someone dropping a phone down an elevator shaft. And this is a true story. And it was one that I started with in writing and it just got such a really positive response. And when I was getting ready to do the talk, I thought, you know, I feel like this is the right story for the audience, but I had to sit down and think, how do I tell this live versus on paper, which is just a different experience. Yeah. I've, I've, think there's some customization that is helpful for preparing as well. Like, for example, I know if I have to give a talk or a speech, I write very differently than I speak. And I think that's probably true for a lot of people. And what I have found helpful is to actually record my thoughts in voice notes and then transcribe the voice notes into text. So then my writing becomes more congruent with my speaking. So I, I, I found that, uh, that, that, that that's helpful. What about figuring out the details then, Karen? So I'm imagining like, you know, scribbled notes of paper as, uh, as an example and, and trying to refine then the important elements so that you're not starting out with, was it a Wednesday or a Tuesday or a Monday? And what was the weather like again? How do you figure out the essential details that you have to include? Yeah, the magic is time. And it's not time to figure out the details. It's time to go back and edit. So what I always encourage people to do is start with the structure. And then the next step is you start to add in the details. What are the events? What are the different specific details? Because it's, um, you can say you had dessert or you can say we had pistachio ice cream with hot fudge on top, and that's going to be more memorable. And so once you get the structure, you can get to details. You can make sure you're engaging the senses in the brain, which is what makes storytelling so powerful. And then you need the space because when you come back, you have to make sure everything earns its place. So there was a movie, La La Land, that came out a few years ago, and the director, Damien Chazelle, was struggling with the opening number where there's a bunch of dancers on a freeway dancing on cars. And he thought, I'm not sure if this is adding to the movie. So he not only cut that number in editing, he cut every musical number. And he decided every musical number has to earn its place and has to move the story forward. And I think that's a good example in this of every piece of your story, especially if you're telling it out loud, it should play a role in the story of, is this engaging the brain in some way or giving an important detail or is it helping engage the senses or is it just extra and it can be cut? And so when you've left yourself a little bit of perspective and time to come back, you can then come through and really be thoughtful about, does this work? Does it earn its place or not? If you don't have the time, which often happens, right? We spend three hours on PowerPoint, 10 minutes on what we're going to say. You tell the story and you learn and you know for next time. So constant reiteration, experimentation. I like that. Karen, you said something else earlier that really caught my attention. And it was the way that we fill in the blanks and like we want to figure out uh, 
who committed the crime at the beginning of a movie. So you said good storytellers will intentionally sort of slow the audience down of making too many assumptions too soon. How does a good storyteller accomplish that? What you want to do is include unexpected things. So it could be unexpected items in your plot. It could be an unexpected detail. Um, comedians are such a great place to watch this because if you watch a comedian give a set, they're always throwing in a sentence that just is not what you expected. Even if you know where the punchline is going, they'll throw in a random sentence that is like, oh. And so that's some of what you want to do with either in your details or your plot or even make a, a fun analysis you want to put in something unexpected. So a great example. I talk about in the TED Talk, this woman, Maria, drops her phone down an elevator shaft. And I did not get to do this in the talk because of time, but I will often share about this story. Maria was at an age where her phone was not just a phone, but a phone wallet. And that always seems to make people laugh because there is this magical age people cross over where they advance from the phone to the phone purse wallet thing. Um, so it can be something little like that that is just unexpected and it makes the audience go, oh, okay, I wasn't expecting that. Are there some qualities in a storyteller? So mannerisms, body language, inflection, like some of these things come into mind. Like, so the story, you could have a great story, but you don't do a good job telling it. So what are some of the things that beginning storytellers should watch out for to make sure that they're getting those pieces right? Yeah, I love, you know, one of your guests early on was Drew Dudley. And if people haven't seen his TED Talk, it's so worth seeing because Drew is just the epitome of excitement and passion and not polished. And he even admits that. It's a great talk. He tells this talk about a lollipop moment. And so I think that's a good example of a great story doesn't have to be the most perfect posture and the most perfect dictation, but it has energy. It has gestures you are using the cadence of your voice. You are often speaking up as you're getting to the point where there's going to be the conflict. And then you pause and let it sink in. I will often, when I'm working with people, I'll, I'll point out that you've seen like graphic facilitation where people are real time drawing out the notes of a talk or a meeting. And they have a specific set of icons or images based on the talk. So if it's a talk about neuroscience, they know how they're going to draw a brain. And so I encourage storytellers the same thing. You need to come up with what are your physical movements that embody your talk. So I, um, in this TED talk, I talk about there was a certificate in the elevator because where's the certificate in the elevator? It's on the wall right there. And so some of what you can do when you're telling stories is figure out in advance, what are those movements that embody what you're trying to say? Because that will also activate the sight part of the brain and start to activate different senses. What are some small steps then? Because when you're, when I'm hearing you say that, I'm just thinking about the, the amount of confidence that you have to have in yourself and, and in the story that you're telling and the comfort with the audience you're telling it to, that could be scary. I mean, we, we can talk about imposter syndrome and stage fright and those kinds of things, but do you have any tips for people just to take some steps towards being a little bit more courageous and a little bit more comfortable when they have to tell that story for the first time? For sure. I think we all tell stories when we're out with friends or in a relaxed setting because it feels like it's not high stakes. It's okay if you don't get details right. You're sometimes even more dramatic. And so you can do it. I always tell people two things to tell themselves right before they start to tell a story. The first is 
channel the energy of a child so excited to show you their bedroom. Like how many times has a three, four, five, six-year-old been like, let me show you my room. And they're so proud to show it. And there's no awkwardness or humbleness or pick anything that a child is so excited to show you. That's what you want to take on when you're telling a story. And the last thing you want to tell yourself, just go have a conversation. And if you can hold on to those two things, then it's awesome. I mean, comedians have jokes that flop all the time, but it doesn't make you think less of them as a comedian. You just have to go out and try because while storytelling is vulnerable, you never get the payoff until you actually tell the story and see the magic of it. What are some of the ways that you have found to be most effective to rehearse a story like by yourself in a group of a trusted group of friends that get together? Like what do you have any tips or what's your experience with, uh, with rehearsing for a story to make sure it goes as flawlessly as possible? Yeah. First is just feel really solid in your story. So figure out your approach, whether you need to talk that out loud with someone, whether you need to write it out, but put the time in to develop the story that you feel good about. And then it can be a combination of filming yourself. It could be just practicing it. So I am a big hiker. There's this rock in a park near me that's kind of an overlook. I will often go up there because it feels like I'm kind of on a stage I'll play practice stories there. No one's around uh, and testing it with people. Cause then you see what do people respond to? Karen, I wonder if this is a good time to have some fun at my expense. And I know I'm kind of putting you on the spot, but I, I think it's helpful sometimes for, uh, for the listeners to be able to see this in real time. And some of the mistakes you might make telling a story the first time and then how you might reevaluate it and, and, and take another attempt at it and make it more compelling. If I was to tell a bit of a story and you could sort of listen to it and break it down. Do you think we could actually work through a bit of your model right now? Yeah, I'm game to play. Um, so we first need a topic. And I am wondering if you would be comfortable. So I, I am a fan of your Instagram and all of your hiking. And I saw you recently did a hike where you were um, a hike for larches, larch trees. That's correct. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Why are you comfortable sharing, uh, telling us about that day, that experience? Sure. Yeah, I Talk could. Us through it. Okay. All right. So I, I recently took a trip down to uh, to Banff, Canada, to go see these beautiful golden larch trees that only are are yellow for about three weeks in the fall, as their uh, needles turn from green to yellow and then and then fall to the ground, creating this magical bed of of golden needles until, of course, the mountaintops are covered with snow. And uh, at this time of year, it's so popular for locals that the the really popular trails will fill up at seven in the morning. And so you really have to get an early start. So this particular morning, my alarm went off at five 30 in the morning and I hit snooze a couple of times and kind of dusted myself off and uh, got ready to go. And uh, the trip down as the sun was, was rising over the mountains was, uh, was breathtaking. And ultimately uh, we ended up at Lake Louise and uh, it took, a, it was about a 90 minute hike uh, up the side of the mountain and a fairly steep incline and then all of a sudden you start to see a sprinkling of yellow trees until this just beautiful forest of larches uh, appears before you as far as the eye can see. And we were able to go far enough up the mountain that uh, we went to the, to, to the actual peak above the summit. And uh, it wasn't just the larches at that point, but it just gives way to these beautiful vistas and lakes and these, uh, these stunning mountain peaks that you just can't see from the highway that makes, the, uh, that, makes that journey uh, all the more worth it. 
Oh, so I'll, I'll stop there, Karen. Yeah, there's so many good elements in that. Okay, I'm going to have you tell it again. And this time, I just want you to focus on all the colors you've seen. Describe as many colors from that day. Gold, yellow, uh, green. Like, take uh, us through the day. Oh, take you through the day. The, yeah. Okay, tell all right. Tell the story again, describing well, the colors. Yeah. So, so as we arrived at Lake Louise, just the aquamarine blue of, of the lake and the contrast of the black and the gray tones from the mountains was absolutely stunning. Uh, as we, uh, as we made our way up the trail, eventually some of the green spruce trees started to become sprinkled with yellow larch trees. And until the point where the entire forest was blanketed with these yellow golden larches, like gold that you have never seen before. And as we continue to make our way through these large trees and gain in elevation and, you know, huffing and puffing because it's a bit of an, a bit of an exhausting trek, uh, you reach the summit of the mountain and with 360 views and the beautiful, again, stunning uh, green forested areas with the yellow golden larches and the aquamarine lakes uh, around us and the, the way that the sunset was, was also golden amongst the clouds was uh, just a breathtaking way to spend a day. Amazing. Like I could see Lake Louise as you're describing it. Okay. I'm going to ask you to tell it again. And this time I want you to focus on describing the, um, the sounds, the smells. So, and use the colors as well, or just focus on the sounds now. Focus on sounds and smells. We're going to come back and pick up colors. All right. All right. As we parked the vehicle and and emerged uh, to the front of the the lake at Lake Louise, I, I was, I, taken aback by just how fresh the air uh, uh, smelled, just breathing in that mountain air and hints of pine and, and uh, crispness of, uh, of only the weather that a, a morning in the mountains could offer. Uh, and as we uh, made our way up, uh, the crunching of the dirt beneath us, the roots and the, and, and the, uh, and the gravel and the rocks, uh, with every step that we made our way up the path and uh, you could almost, you can hear your heartbeat after a while with the incline, the way it was. And uh, I, I can remember vividly an exhale as the first larches started to appear. Cause that was the thing I'd been dreaming about for three weeks was making it down before the needles fell to the ground and it was too late. And uh, so anyways, Karen, I'll stop at that point. Yeah, there for feedback. So I, I, I'm going to pick it up in a second, but I just want to pause. Like when you talk about hearing the heartbeat, what you're actually doing is activating a couple things. One, our brains are now mirroring your brains as though we are on this hike with you. We're having neural coupling. And also our brains are now lighting up in our sight and our um, sound categories. So you've been telling the same story, but each time there's a different angle to it that makes it more vivid in a different way. So what I'm going to do this time is I'm going to walk you through story structure, and then we're going to have you put it together. So if you are going to come up with a sentence or two for the beginning, the context of what was happening, why were you doing this? How would you describe that? Karen, can you, can you repeat that question again, please? I was, yeah. I was starting to take some notes already. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, I hear this is being recorded, so you're in good luck. Okay, so you, I want you to give me a sentence or two on the context, the beginning of this, of why did you go on this hike? Give me an idea of what you were doing this day. There's nothing more inspiring in life than being in nature and being still. So that, that come, what's, that's what comes to mind. Okay. So if we were going to go to the conflict or the point of tension or where, um, 
Yeah. What would you, what would you describe that as? If you're not sure, I have an idea, but I want to see. Sure. Well, I think, I mean, there's some angst about, there's some conflict about getting away from the busyness of life and getting connected, uh, getting connected with your true self, being in your happy place, uh, escaping maybe the stresses of life and of work. Not that I have a lot of stress at work. I have great colleagues, but uh, you know, all that, all that kind of stuff. uh, Those are some things coming to mind. What were you thinking? I think also you mentioned you really wanted to make sure you got there before the needles dropped. And so it's the combination of getting into the woods and hiking and like, there's this limited amount of time to do it. Um, So what would your outcome be as a result of this hike, as a result of this day, what happened? What did you feel? Yeah. Gratitude, appreciation, inner peace. Um, those are, yeah, those are some of the big ones. You're right I could see some urgency being around because there was some about checking the calendar and checking, checking schedules. And I wasn't sure if it was going to work to get down to the mountains in the first place. So it doesn't have to be some big life challenge right, that you're right. overcoming. It could just be the urgency of, of scheduling and, and, uh, and the, uh, the scarcity of, of the window of opportunity. Yeah. And getting away from all the people on the trail, like you said. Okay. So what we've done is we have given the structure of the beginning, middle, end, the context conflict outcome of that you wanted to be able to get into nature, to have this break, to see the larches before they lost their leaves, to have this moment. Um, and then the impact of that. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell the story again, using that as the frame, and you can take a moment to think about it. But as you do it, I want you to be really thoughtful about how do you um, use that frame? And how do you pull in more on the, give some specific details on the color, give some specific details on the sights and sounds. So you don't have to repeat everything that you said in all of them, but I want you to pick a few things in each and put it together. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now this is, this is, this is helpful. Um, so every year in the, every year in the middle of September, there is a mad dash to the mountains to catch a glimpse of something that is only around for three weeks. It's the golden larch trees in the Rocky mountains, checking my schedule. It didn't look like I was going to make it in time. And the first opportunity was going to be a week too late. Thankfully, through some, uh, some gracious accommodation for, from, uh, from some colleagues that enabled me to take a day off of work, I made it down to the mountains. And knowing that the parking lot fills up at six in the morning in, during this peak season just to caps a, capture a glimpse of the larches, I set my alarm for 5.30. And I've never been more excited to, to jump out of bed so early in the morning when it's pits black and all you can see outside your window is just the street lights on the backdrop of the Rocky Mountains. Uh, as I made my way to the to the uh, to the hiking trail, I I was caught off guard by the beauty of the sunrise over top of the mountain peaks. I'd been there for the larches and was surprised by the beauty of the sunrise. Uh, as we finally got to Lake Louise and parked our car, the stunning aquamarine lake, the smells of the mountain, the crisp fresh mountain air on a fall morning inspired me for the hike that was ahead of us. Uh, as my heart started to pound up the trail. I could feel uh, that not only the tension and the anticipation of seeing the first larch tree, but also looking for a flat place to take a break and catch my breath. As the ground crunched beneath me, I caught my first glimpse of a yellow tree amongst the bright green spruce trees. And as I continued my way up the path, 
it gave way to more and more yellow larch trees, golden larch trees, till before I knew it, I was surrounded by these larches. And, uh, and it was late enough in the season that underneath me was like the yellow brick road from the Wizard of Oz, just covered in these golden larch needles. Uh, and so that, um, as I made my way to the end of the trail and summited the mountain, I found what I had came for, peace, serenity, um, gratitude for, for life and appreciation for the people around me as I just sat on the cliff of a rocky ledge, taking in the environment around me. So, Amazing. so that's, that's where I'll end it. Yeah. So in about five minutes, you transform this into a more vivid story. There were so many things you did that I want to point out. The um, yellow brick road grounding or connecting it to the Wizard of Oz, right? That's a thing that's going to help the filing. It's connecting it to something that we know. And it's a good specific detail. All of the colors, all of that are engaging us. Where I would continue to go with this if we were going to continue working it, I would um, maybe give a more specific example of like, as your heart beat in your chest, it sounded like blank, little things like that, that could, you can always continue to tweak and make it more vivid. But what you did is really anchored it. And you had some nice unexpected things in there. Like you were never so excited to get up at 530 in the morning when it was dark. So all of that, like, do you feel different? Let me ask you, how do you feel from telling the story the first time to the second? Well, I, yeah, I feel incredibly different. I actually feel emotional about telling the story because what I, what it makes me think about Karen is when I, when I get to the end, one of the reasons I love hiking so much, number one is, is the physical exertion. Number two is just, it's, it's, it's breathtaking. But the third one is I never feel more connected to, um, you could call it connected to source, the universe. Some people might say God, I don't, I never feel more connected to the appreciation and all the gifts that life has to offer us as when I'm sort of in the backcountry sitting on a mountain. So yeah. that's what it's making me think about. So yeah. Karen, that was really helpful. And I, at the risk of, uh, you know, boring the audience to, to, to literally to death here, I hope that that's helpful for people that are listening because so often we have all of these magical moments around us, but we don't necessarily give them credit. We don't take the time to work them enough. And it also doesn't have to be perfect to just be better. So that was super helpful for me, Karen. And again, I hope, uh, I hope going through that framework is helpful and practical for people that are watching. I did want to say one thing though. You said that you started to feel emotional and that is really common with a story and emotional doesn't have to mean laughing or crying, but you feel different. And a great story is an exchange of energy, right? So you are feeling something and you are passing that on and through neuroscience, our oxytocin levels rise, which means we are gaining more empathy and trust for you. And all of that happens. So part of the reason why storytelling feels so vulnerable is people start to feel something and then they think like, no, um, you want to feel that. And that's not a bad thing because that only lends itself to the story. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. And we've got some really terrific comments coming in on the chat right now, which I, I very much appreciate. And part of this whole gratitude, I think, is also the community that um, that has embraced us in the pandemic and this has been a, a wild ride for all of us it's hard to believe we're, we're almost two years into this now but a lot of the people that are tuning in right now and that listen to the podcast and watch the youtube broadcasts they've been integral parts of our community and give us a lot of energy so it's it's uh, it's nice to share a moment like this with all of them thanks for making that possible karen thank you
So it, 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 I'll kind of change gears a little bit here, but I, I thought we could talk a little bit about why stories are so important in the workplace as well, because I, I think we underestimate, and I'll even share an example of yesterday. Like I had to go give a presentation uh, to an executive team in, in Edmonton, and it's a very fact-based kind of presentation. And I, knowing that we were going to have this conversation today, I, I didn't have enough time to put a story into it. But why is storytelling so critical in the workplace? Well, just from a sheer ROI perspective, a story is going to use more of your brain. It's going to then be more memorable. We've all sat through meetings that we forgot what was said five minutes after we left the room. They are boring. There's nothing that's really helpful. So when you can tell a story, you are just harnessing more of someone's brain. You are going to be activating the different senses, which makes you store memory in there. We also decide through emotions. People love to think that we are making these logically, rationally based decisions. And so Antonio Damasio is a neuroscientist that has studied decision-making and how it originates in our amygdala. And he's done research in fMRIs where they can see if someone has to choose between this or this, they can see neurons moving in the direction of the choice before the person even becomes aware of what their choice is. So we are neurologically making decisions at a subconscious level, often based on our past experiences and emotions. The challenge is by the time we become aware of it, we apply logic and rationalization and we think we're making these logic-based decisions and we're not. Truly, data doesn't change behavior, it's emotions that do. So when we listen to pitches that are just data, a few things are happening. We're looking at the data, which is often too many data points on one slide, um, and we're questioning, do I trust this data? Do I trust the source of it? Do I trust the person talking about it? And because our brain makes assumptions, we're leading to our own interpretation of it. And so often people aren't explaining or walking you through the story of the data. So we're coming to our own understanding. And we have all probably seen um, engagement survey data or voice of employee survey data, which always ends up in this healthy debate about not enough people responded, or I don't believe in this, or it just ends up being this argument about the data instead of a discussion about what it means. So when you use a story, you are guiding people through to a shared understanding. They may disagree, but you're now having a different type of conversation there's a phrase that I love that is simple data leads to complex conversations, meaning if I understand the data simply and I'm not debating it and I'm not confused by it, I can now have a really rich discussion about what it means. And that's what stories provide. They allow for you to do that. So just from a sheer energy time perspective, a story is going to create more meaning, create more understanding, tee up better conversations, save the world from one boring meeting at a time. It just creates a better place. The reason people don't do it is it takes a little bit of time and we are much more comfortable moving around slides and just talking at it instead of really thinking about what we're going to say. Yeah, that is really interesting. Now, when I think about telling stories and using it to persuade and influence people, it's often through the lens of having some time to prepare. And quite often, though, what we find ourselves in our meetings with our colleagues, and you've got a different perspective that you weren't prepared to have to talk about. And it still occurs to me that instead of just getting into the data and the facts and your different perspective, if you could share some kind of like a 
some kind of a story, even if it's just a quick one or some kind of a personal perspective or someone else's perspective, that might strengthen the argument. So if we don't have time to prepare, Karen, do you have any advice for how we can ad lib in the moment and use a little bit of story, even if it's not a big, robust, prepared one? Yeah, I think if you always start with what is the idea or outcome that I want the audience to do, which that's probably problem number one of often we we have these presentations, but we don't really focus it on what exactly are we trying to do. That question also applies if you're presenting data. What is it you want people to understand? Is it a FYI or is it a take action? So starting first there. You should be able to think of that in hopefully less than 30 seconds. And then from there, you can think of, is there a metaphor, an analogy, a quick story? Like stories don't have to be five minutes. You can tell a really impactful story in 30 seconds. The challenge is people don't know what story to tell because they haven't anchored on what they're trying to do. And I, and I yeah, that's good advice. I, I try to use metaphors often. And here's what I, I think I found, at least at, in the last few years, as you, as you do something more, of course, it's like building a muscle, you get better at it. So uh, I would encourage anybody that sees the value and the merit in this to just take a step in that direction, to take a, take a step back. And even if it doesn't work so well at, begin, at the beginning, I think you train your brain to be able to be better at improv, the more that you, uh, the more that you do it. So there's, there's lots of parallels. Uh, uh, you talk about comedy a lot, and there's a lot of, a lot of parallels even just in this conversation to, uh, to improv and some of the things we know uh, about that. And really easy place to start. If you're not sure you're, you're trying to get more comfortable with storytelling, start with a photo. Yeah. Find a photo that doesn't have words. That's some image that is aligned to what you're trying to do. It'll one be unexpected and it will allow for each person to connect with it. And it allows for you to make some points. So photos are really easy places to start. I want to take you on a bit of a different direction now, Karen, and we don't just tell stories to other people. And in fact, we probably tell stories uh, to ourselves the most. Do you have any insight into how we can start to change the stories we, we tell ourselves? Because it occurs to me that, in a, to a large part at least, the quality of our lives are dependent upon the types of stories we tell ourselves. Yeah, one of my friends is so good at calling me out on this. When she hears me spinning on something, she will say, how is that story working out for you? And every time I'm like, oh, she's right. Sounds like um, Dr. Phil. Yeah, yeah, better, better. I think it is really the first thing is recognizing what story you are telling yourself. So what is it that you believe? What are you telling yourself? Because the one you tell yourself is the most important. And the voice that you are talking to yourself with is the most important. And so I think when you can get clarity on that, you can start to see, is this the right story for myself. Um, I will often in, in coaching, I'll ask someone, well, what would you say to a, a friend, a child, a relative, uh, insert whatever, if you were talking to them and immediately they become clear and they see how the way they're talking to themselves or the story they're telling themselves isn't helpful. And so I think the combination of once you get clear on what it is you are saying and doing, you can then take yourself out of it and think about what you would say to someone else. And you can start to see that shift that you want to make. I think reframing can be useful in this endeavor as well as to think about what, what alternatives could exist to the story that I'm telling. How might somebody else uh, view it? Or if you have that Dr. Phil friend, what would they say about the way that I'm, that I'm viewing this? So uh, that good advice. And I, 
I don't know if you have any comments on this or not, Karen, but what about the implications of stories with diversity and inclusion? Like, are there ways that that we can use stories to create a more equitable and, and, and fair world and to see other people's perspectives? I think that's one of the one of the biggest things that causes us to have blind spots when it comes to diversity and inclusion is we know our own stories, but we don't know what it's like to perhaps be in a minority group, as an example, or live with a disability. I mean, you tell a an amazing um, heartfelt autism story in your TED talk, so that's why I asked the question. Yeah, I think first there's not enough amplification of diverse voices. So the more you start to hear a story, the more you pay attention to it. So storytelling is one of the most powerful ways to shape culture and develop leaders. There's been research on it through Stanford, and it's been replicated because a story is telling you what is encouraged or discouraged. So right away, the use of a story is going to say, here are the diverse employees, characteristics, perspectives, values that we we believe in, that we support, or here's what is not accepted here. And so being aware of the stories you tell is so important. When I'm working with companies on culture, one of the things we do is we look at what is the story that your culture tells. And it's not the values that hang on the wall. It's the day-to-day experiences. And so helping each team understand what those are and how can they start to bring forward different voices and other voices I'm so thrilled that people like Minda Hartz that has her new book out that are helping amplify different voices in the workforce. And we need more of that because the more, you know, what you see, you believe. Um, So it's a combination of being mindful of the stories that we tell and intentionally bringing in enough voices and perspective to help people then feel like, oh, I understand this group. It goes back to the in and out group. I understand this. I can see this. I want things to be different. You're reminding me of a good interview question that candidates can ask, and it's, be, and it's about telling me a story. So asking the interviewers or some of the employees before you accept a job, tell me a story about what it's like to work here. Tell me a story about the workplace culture. Tell me a story about how your managers treat you instead of just telling me the facts of what the values are. So that is a good, uh, that is a really good reminder. But I would go a step further with those. So I did a Fast Company article with these questions. If people are interested, I ask like, not just tell a story, but get more specific with that manager. Tell me about someone you're proud of. Tell me about someone you promoted and why. Um, Tell me how you started your last meeting. Because those specific moments they can think of. If you ask more broadly, then people default to the values on the wall. And that's not what the the life is. But yes, absolutely. The more specific questions, the more rich all of those stories come out. Those are brilliant questions. Thank you for sharing those with us. Yeah, those are, I made a note of those. Those are awesome. Uh, you shared an exercise with me too, a simple workshop activity that you sometimes have people do, and you called it draw happy. It, it sounded, yeah. it sounds fun and useful. What is the, what is that activity? So a lot of people will say, I don't have anything original to say. I don't have a story. It's already been told before. Why am I supposed to tell the same story that's been told? And I will have everybody take a piece of paper and draw happy, like whatever that is to them. I don't give a lot of instructions. I let them choose what happy is. Um, So everyone's heads down and there's always laughing and a varying degree of artistic talent. And then if we're in person, we get up and we walk around and we look at everyone's happy. And if we're on camera, everyone holds up and shares their happy and they describe it. 
And the point is that we all experience happy and we all have our own version of it and we all have our own story of it. So the story may have been told, but it hasn't been told by you. And you have meaning and value and perspective to bring from it. And so ironically, happy for many people is a beach scene. So even with that, they can start to see the wide variation and how they have something to bring to the story that's different. So it's a nice way to challenge this. I don't have anything to say or it's been done before because we all have happy and it looks different and it's worth hearing. Yeah, there's all sorts of variations that you could play on that too. I mean, I'm thinking about when you said draw happy, I thought, geez, I'm, I'm going to draw Andrea Kenna, who I work with laughing, or I'm going to draw Nicole, or I'm going to draw uh, Jennifer, who's another colleague of mine. They're always so happy and full of joy. Uh, but anyways, there's lots of spins you could take. There was an interesting question that came in on the chat from Rick. It was a networking question, actually. Do you have any advice for some questions you can ask in a networking setting to get people to sort of come out of their shell and tell you a story if you just met them? So the trick to storytelling is sometimes if you tell a story, people tell a story in response. So you might want to have what I call the back pocket story, which is something that is interesting to you or that you read. So like my personal back pocket story right now is um, one of my clients told me that airbag design was informed by origami, that the way an airbag has to open to catch the body and move it back without injury, had to have very intricate folds. And it took so much time to figure out how to do that and have it be effective that they went to this origami master who taught them. And so is this fascinating story of how origami has informed all these industrial things. So, you know, if you're making small talk instead of nice weather today, you can sometimes share a story and that often will start it. I think from there, um, going to what is known of, depending why you're at that networking event, I always love to ask people if they like to read. Um, books seem to be such an interesting way to open up conversation. You know, going to hobbies, the, the things that are core to us are the easiest places to start. But the rich stories are going to come from the tangential things like, can I tell you about this weird article I read about origami and airbags? I love that. I love that. And there's no substitute for genuine curiosity. Uh, I mean, I, uh, I, I, I fear networking uh, as much as anybody, I think. But if you can find some people to genuinely connect with, that's better than uh, walking out with 45 business cards any day of the week, in my estimation. Karen, I found it fascinating in the, in the, the lead up to our conversation today to find out that you're an introvert. So what's it like for an introvert to become so popular, number one, and then number two, an expert in storytelling. So, so much of storytelling is actually very introverted or even keynote speaking, like 90% of that is me thinking and working and walking through the woods or writing. And 10% of it is this, which I enjoy that. I'm not, you know, I don't want to be a hermit all the time. So it's the right balance, but it does require me to have thinking time. The um, explosion that happened was definitely unexpected. I remember getting a call from the team at TED when they told me my talk was moving to TED.com. And I said, like, what should I be prepared for? And they said, you just have no idea. And that's probably the best thing they could have told me. I don't know that they could have truly described the upheaval that would have happened. And it's been wonderful. I've had uh, government leaders from other countries reach out. I've had, of course, people all over the globe, um, Fortune 500 companies. I've had people send me their stories, um, different different groups with 
people of all abilities have reached out. And so it's been just very humbling to see people respond and share stories in turn. And then, of course, the best thing that has happened is I had literary agents reach out, which is why I am now working on the book. That's great. And the book is going to be released when? Um, TBD, but 2023. All right. It's it's that's specific, but still open ended. So you, you give true. yourself you, you buy yourself a little time there. Well, I can't wait to read it. And if you haven't seen the TED Talk, so Karen's TED Talk is wonderful. It's nearing 1.8 million views. Well worth. I think it's about 16 minutes long, and it's well worth the 16 minutes to dig into some of the uh, the inspirational ways to tell stories, and again, some of the science and the structure behind it. Karen, this is probably a good time to segue to our three and thirty. So uh, Tyler is going to bring that up. Uh, so what are three things in the next 30 days that the listeners could do to become better storytellers? Well, I hope everyone's inspired to tell a story. And I would encourage you to start with your audience because this is the piece people overlook. They tend to start with the story and they sometimes miss sticking the landing because they haven't thought through what they want their audience to know, think, feel, or do different after. So start there. When you have an opportunity to tell a story, define what you want for your audience, and then practice that story structure just like I did with Jeff. Write out a sentence for the beginning, the conflict, uh, the context, what's happening, why do we care, the conflict, the middle, tension, where things happen, the outcome or the end of where everything changes in the takeaway. Because once you get that structure, you can then start to add in details and start to engage the senses and start to make your story more dynamic and add some unexpected things. And the most important thing I can tell you is that a lot of people will say to me, well, I'm not a storyteller. I don't have a story to tell. And you do. No story is birthed perfect. It is not fully formed that you take out of your pocket. It begins as an idea or a kernel. And so don't wait for a perfect story to come. Take your ideas and make them perfect. That's great, Karen. Thanks for sharing those tips. And thank you for being here today. This has been such a wonderful way to spend uh, to spend an hour. Uh, you're just filled with such great insights. You're so kind and you've been so generous to us, not just today, but just with your interactions and uh, even just some of the, the comments that you've had for us along the way on some of the things that, that, that we've been doing to show up for our leadership community. So thank you for all of that and for, uh, for this great use of time today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been such an honor and a joy. And can't wait to read the book. And Karen, how can, people, how can people track you down? Where do you want them to find you? Easiest place is my website, www.karenkareneber.com. Great. And there were a lot of questions coming in. So if you had questions that we didn't get a chance to answer, get those over to Karen through her website, follow her on LinkedIn, follow her on Twitter. Her Instagram is wonderful as well. And to stay connected to us. So to find results, you can find us on all the social channels, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can find us on our LinkedIn account as well. And don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube channel. You can find us there. And then you can also listen to the recordings wherever your favorite podcast application might be. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you like what you saw, don't forget to share episode links with your friends and colleagues. And if you're ready to take the next step and you're part of a leadership team that you just know has untapped potential, don't wait another moment. Go to UnleashResults.com and subscribe to our newsletter. We'll take care of the rest.